to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. The mission of the Veterans Breakfast Club is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories, and we accomplish this through public storytelling programs where veterans of all eras can share their memories in their own words. Enjoy the program. Good morning. That was pretty good. I heard Nick. I didn't hear anybody else. Good morning. Great to be back for our first breakfast of 2016. I missed it enormously, as I told another group. And this is the second year in a row this has happened. It was the middle of February, and I was stomping around the house. And my wife said, I know your problem. You need a breakfast. And that's very true. I miss them so much when we, when we take off January and February. But it's wonderful to be back. Uh, for those of you who haven't been to an event before, I'm Todd. I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club, and we've been around since 2008, gathering veterans together to share their stories. And we hold about 40 of these a year uh, at about a dozen different locations in Western Pennsylvania. And uh, we've, we launch in late March, and we go to the end of December. And we usually try to get uh, half a dozen to a dozen stories told per storytelling program. It's just the most amazing thing I think I've ever been involved with. Last year, our oldest veteran to share a story was Angelo Camarada at 102. Our youngest veteran, and this was a veteran uh, who had done six years in the Marines, was 24. And so we get everything in between. And we always like to begin with the national anthem. And we have World War II veteran, Army Air Corps veteran, Walt Patton who'll be leading us in the national anthem. Thank you, Walt. I'm not the oldest, I don't think, but I'm one of the oldest. <laughs> That's why I got Todd to help me up the steps. Uh, if you ask me, my table's down there, so I'll tell you my age, but I'm not gonna tell you now. We will begin by singing the national anthem. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight o'er the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, and the rockets red Upon bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-strangled banner yet wave for the land of the free and the I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, our nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Enjoy the day. Thank you, Walter. Renee, Renee, would you stand up? Renee Vary will be advancing the slides today. Thank you, Renee. 
Renee, could you advance one? Uh, like I said before, our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories, and we do that mainly through the storytelling programs. We also do it through our interviews. Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Project is our oral history project where we sit veterans down for interviews, and the director of that project is here today, also recording this event, and that's Kevin Farkas. Kevin, could you raise your hand? I think we've cataloged 800 veteran stories, and uh, we are archiving them at the Heinz History Center and also in our own collection and making, editing them and making them available on our website. And actually, if you do miss a breakfast or if you're curious about stories told at other breakfasts, I don't talk about this as much as I should. If you go on our website, veteransbreakfastclub.com, you could actually listen to the breakfasts that we have. They're broken out by stories, so you could just pick if you're a Marine, and you know how Marines are, if you want to just hear Marine stories, hiya, you could just go and listen to just the Marines, you know, the stories told just at, uh, by Marines at the Robert Morris breakfast. It's really fascinating to hear the different stories told at the different locations. And I, I also want to say that today, March 29th, is, do you know, Phil? You don't, despite your hat you don't know that today is Vietnam Veterans Day. Yeah, March 29th is Vietnam Veterans Day. March 29th marks the 43rd anniversary of when U.S. forces left Vietnam on March 29th, 1973. I think the final plane flew out uh, from Da Nang in 1973. I know that there were covert and not so covert operations going on there after that, but March 29th is the official date of Vietnam Veterans Day. And actually, I think that's why we're missing some veterans today. There's a big event at the Aspenwall VA to mark Vietnam Veterans Day. So we'll be hearing some from Vietnam veterans today uh, to mark it. And as you know, that we are a nonprofit and we, we uh, get by on grants and donations and also on sponsorships. And we are very lucky to have two wonderful sponsors and very supportive sponsors uh, today. Uh, if you could advance the slide, Renee. Our first sponsor is from Julian Gray, Matt Kikta. Thank you very much, Matt, for coming today and sponsoring the breakfast. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Matthew Kikta. I'm a VA accredited attorney with Julian Gray Associates. Uh, we are a sponsor as a was stated, and we're very happy to be a part of this. Um, we are an elder law firm in Pittsburgh, and a lot of our work comes from working with veterans and obtaining benefits and VA benefits and pensions to essentially allow the veteran to age in their home or in a facility. So we create streams of income and do estate planning to enable that to occur, okay? So if you have any questions or anything um, you want to have our newsletters mailed to you on a monthly basis. Uh, please see Erin, who's in the back there, and she will take care of that for you. So thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your breakfast, and thanks for having us. Take care. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. Renee, next sponsor is Antoinette Piccolo. How do you forget that name? From the Baldwin Health Center. Thank you very much, Antoinette, for coming today. Good morning, everyone. 
Thank you for having us be here today. Um, thank you all for your service. We are a skilled nursing facility in the South Hills of Baldwin. Um, we are under a VA contract as well. So, um, you know, we honor all of our veterans inside our communities and outside our communities. And thanks again for letting us be here today. Enjoy your breakfast. Thank you very much, Antoinette. <laughs> Can you advance the slide there? There we go. This is our new newsletter. It came out a few weeks ago. If you didn't get in the, it in the mail, it's because we don't have your address. So please let us know your address if you did not get one of these in the mail. Uh, also, I have uh, a little under 3,000 of these in my garage. I would like to get rid of them. Gene Link, Gene, where are you? Hi, Gene. Gene has single-handedly distributed hundreds of these to every library in the South Hills. And thank you so much, Gene, because that's how we get new people. If you go to a... And all the people at the library know me, because I don't return my books. Um, if you go to a, um, you know, an American Legion or a retirement community or a library uh, or anywhere, a doctor's office, um, please take a stack of these as you leave. You know, take 50 or so or 20 or 10, whatever it is you feel you could distribute. It's great, very helpful to us. That's how people find out about us. And could you advance the slide, Renee? Thank you. We have a lot of merchandise. Our new piece of merchandise for 10 bucks. Look at that. We get a great hat. 10 bucks, it can be yours. We have shirts for 35. We have that wonderful biography of Bill Malden, written by that great guy. And I'll sign it for you for, for 10 bucks. And um, we also have our, our uh, next issue of our magazine, our magazine veteran voices that we debuted last year is sold out no more copies uh but we are kevin i should say is laying out our next issue and that will be released on april 21st so hopefully next time here we'll have copies of the magazine to sell you it's a whole new issue with a whole new bunch of stories in it this is a magazine where we take the stories told at their breakfasts and in our interviews and we package them in a magazine and uh uh, it's just, the stories are wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. This is something you should have also gotten in the mail. This is an invitation to our Veteran Voices fundraising gala. It is on April 21st. It's at the Heinz History Center. We did this last year. It was a lot of fun. We had 250 people there. We had breakfast served as dinner. And uh, the museum has opened up to us, so anybody who comes to our event can tour all the exhibits, there's some music, there's some auctions, uh, and it's, it was just a whole lot of fun. I got a call from a vet yesterday who said, boy, your breakfasts have gotten very expensive now. It costs $60 for a veteran to go? And I said, no, you know, this is our special gala at the Heinz History Center. He said, are you trying to make money off of us? And I said, yes. This is a fundraising event. It is not like one, it's not part of our programming. It's not generally what, our, what we do. It's a fundraising event. So uh, veterans tickets are 60 bucks. General admission is 75 bucks. VIP admission is $125. George, you are a VIP to me. But to be a VIP on April 21st, you gotta shell out 125 bucks. All right, so everybody's welcome. Um, 
Okay, Renee, could you advance the slide, please? Yes. Poor Jack, I didn't even warn you that I was going to be starting off with you today. Uh, this is Jack Watson. He's come to our breakfast before and he's talked before. I'm friends with Jack's daughter, Sue Wilcher. And Sue emailed me the picture on the left. And she said, look at that studly guy without the shirt. That's you, right, Jack? Yes, it is. Yeah. The guy with me is uh, N.J. Burris, and uh, he just whipped my butt in handball. <laughs> and where was that taken? Well, you can tell who lost. Look at the guy all worn out. <laughs> N.J. didn't even break into a sweat. And where was it taken? Uh, that was on Maui. When? That was our base camp. That was after Iwo Jima. We were preparing for Japan at that point. You mentioned Iwo Jima. We uh, had a, another anniversary pass on Saturday, March 26th, is usually considered the ending date of the Battle of Iwo Jima, uh, the beginning date being, I think, February 19th, 1945. Right. And Sue, your daughter, told me that you have a flag that you hang during yeah. that time. Could you talk about that a little bit? A friend of mine, he was going to be here today, but he had a funeral to go to. Uh, Bob Pregans. Uh, Bob and his son uh, went on a tour two years ago of all the Pacific battlefields. And one of the places they went was to Iwo Jima. And when Bob knew he was going over there, he took, I don't know, three or four flags with him and uh, part of the tour, they went up to the top of Mount Suribachi, which is where the flag was flown during the battle. And uh, Bob displayed that flag or flew it on the top of, of Suribachi at the time he was there, two years ago. So he brought that flag back and gave it to me. And uh, I fly that flag. I, I only put it up one day the 19th of February, which was D-Day. Uh, I fly a flag every day, but that flag is up on D-Day, and uh, then I take it down and fold it up, put it away. Do you remember D-Day, February 19th, 1945? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was in a replacement platoon when we went to Iwo, because Iwo Jima was supposed to take three days at the most, and that was gonna be finished. Uh, that turned out, of course, not to be true. So. I was in reserve for the 24th Regiment, and the 24th Regiment was in reserve also. But the 24th Regiment, each hour was 9 o'clock in the morning. The 24th Regiment went in at 11 o'clock. Things continued to be bad, and they called the replacements my outfit, and we went in the second day. Your daughter also mentioned that you turned 92 on March 9th. Yes. So that struck me that you had a birthday while you were in combat on Iwo Jima. Yeah. Didn't know it. I was going <laughs> to... Yeah, we left Iwo on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. We were sitting down on the beach, gathered down there, waiting for small boats. And, uh, oh, that's, that's my bayonet in a notebook I had. But anyhow, we left... Uh, on the 17th of uh, March. Why was I telling that? <laughs> you, said, you said you were on the beach March 17th? Oh, that's when it occurred to me that 
son of a gun. This is 17th of March. I turned 21 while I was here. So I was a couple of days beyond 21 before I realized that I had had a birthday. So on, on my birthday, we were kind of busy. <laughs> Do you remember leaving Iwo, being on that beach? and? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's why when Todd was gathering some things together for the History Center exhibit, uh, he asked me if I had any equipment or gear or notebooks or anything I had. I said, yeah, I have a couple of things. And uh, one of them was my bayonet. And just in passing, I said, but it's not my bayonet, you know. And uh, I didn't think any more about it. And Todd said, why isn't it your bayonet? What happened? Well, I told him that uh, we were sitting on the beach waiting to, on the, for the small boats to take us out. And uh, my bayonet was pretty cruddy. And so I it was cleaning it off by jabbing it into the ground. I stuck it in there and I thought, I don't need it anymore. So as far as I know, it's still on Iwo. <laughs> but I picked up, I had to have a bayonet, so I picked up another bayonet. And so the scabbard is my original scabbard that I was issued in boot camp. But the sword is, or the the bayonet belonged to somebody else. I don't know who. I still have it. And that was 71 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Jack. Kevin, could you say that? Sure. I just want to say that um, Jack's story is on our website. You can watch the entire interview that Todd did. But I, I created a, an audio short story out of that interview, and it is still our most popular, I told you this last year at the Heinz Center, it's our most popular uh, short story. People all over the world are tuning in to listening to this, your story, Jack. It's an amazing story. But you can listen to that on our website. Look up Jack on our directory, and you'll see a page for him. The video's there, the audio short story, and some wonderful photographs. You're a celebrity, Jack. Nick DiLoretto, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. That's your that's your picture up there, huh? Yeah, that's when that's when I was uh, young and in my prime. How old were you in that picture? Uh, in that picture, I was uh, 19 years old. Were you, you? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Were you drafted or did you volunteer? Oh yeah, they gave me a birthday present. <laughs> they drafted me. On, uh, I graduated high school. Thank God. And uh, that was in May, and in July, they had me on a train going to Fort Blix, Texas. That's down around El Paso, if you people don't know. And uh, I went from there, we went to, uh, oh, uh, we went to Fort Bliss. We had six weeks of boot training, and that was, that was tough for a young kid like me. And uh, after that, we went to Camp Louisiana in the swamps down there. And from there, we boarded a, uh, another train to take us to Camp Shanks, New York. And from there, we went over to Europe. Now, you had brothers in the service also? Yes, I lost a brother in the Battle of the Bulge. And I also had two other brothers, they're still living, 
They're from Johnstown, originally from Johnstown. And uh, yeah, my brother was a quarter of a mile from me. That was sad. But anyhow, we won the war. This is you? <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Yeah, we finally had a little time to take it. This was in Bastogne, Germany. We finally had time to take a break. And so one of the guys says, here, Nick, let us take a picture of you. And I says, well, go ahead, go ahead. So anyhow, it was uh, something over there in Germany. You know, it never gets warm in Germany. If it isn't 20 below, there's something wrong. <laughs> and we, you know, I'm, we froze. They'd say, well, you, you fellas have to dig a foxhole. And I'd say, what are you going to dig it with, a stick of bomb or something? It was frozen, 20 below zero over there. And what was your job in the Army? What did you do? Well, I was uh, in the anti-aircraft first, and then they decided they needed a better guy in the field artillery. So they put me in the field artillery also. So I went from anti-aircraft to field artillery uh, in my three years' service. We boarded the SS Maritania before uh, from United States to Germany. There were 16,000 soldiers on this big ship. Can you imagine? Wow, I cannot imagine that, actually. We had submarines all around us protecting and boats, and I'll tell you, six days, I think we all, well, we didn't in our pants, but anyhow, we almost, you see, if, you know. Did you get seasick? No. That boat, you thought it was on a highway. That's, a, you know, it was such yeah. huge. They were in a rush to get you over there. I guess so. So anyhow, I, I'm sorry, I have to read some of my notes because... My brains aren't working too good anymore. Uh, we had crossed the English Channel, and uh, if you want to see a, a rocky, rocky channel, I suppose, of course, there was only 600 of us on that thing. And I think we was there for uh, nine days, and I think we went to the bathroom 18 times. <laughs> well, anyhow, one of the nicest things is that I goofed up a little bit, and uh, they says, okay, Nick, you're going to go into the kitchen, KP. You goofed up a little bit? A little bit. What did you do? <laughs> well, you know, I had got pneumonia while I was over there, and they sent us to the French Riviera to recuperate. <laughs> we were there two weeks. I was in a hospital with pneumonia, and and. We were supposed to come back, and we didn't come back. <laughs> so the uh, MPs, they came after us. Uh, and the next thing you know, I, I was a corporal then. And next thing you know, I was a private. <laughs> so they said, okay, KP for you. So the nicest thing of that was they put me on a serving line. And can anybody guess... Who walked through my child line? Patton. 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 And he had the nerve to say, how you doing, son? Yeah. How he you said, doing, he son? He said, how you doing, son, to you? Yeah. Wow. I says, Christ, I says, I, I know I had a father. But anyhow, he was so nice. 
He says, keep up the good work. Yeah, I'm still slinging slash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see what else we got here. Well, anyhow, we started out at Omaha Beach. Okay, that was in uh, June 1944. And from there, we went to, uh, we, we went to Omaha Beach on June the 3rd. Uh, we went to Paris, Luxembourg, Hanover, Germany, Belgium, Liège, and uh, most of the fighting for us was after they put us in this uh, field artillery, we had 90 millimeter shells. You know, they were tall as me, and we used to knock out the tanks, okay? It was all, you, th you thought you had communication. They, they would tell us how to set our guns at a certain degree and everything else, and bingo, you'd knock these tanks out. We fought up in Bastogne up to the Siegfried line, that was a German line, where we met the Russians. That was at the Rhine River. And boy, they were great. They had vodka. Oh my God, imagine a guy like me, 20 years old, drinking vodka. Oh yeah, yeah. But, any, but anyhow, we did. We did. So it was a, a, a real experience for me, I have to honestly say, that I think back every, every, every day, you know, I'm wheelchair bound, and I sit and watch television, and I watch this AHC military channel. If you guys ever want to see anything interesting, turn on to channel 112, and uh, like they always have the Battle of the Balls, and you won't, you're not going to believe it, but the first outfit I was in was a 131st anti-aircraft, and son of a gun, my wife says, Nick, there's your battery up there. Look, we was in Battery C, and we ended up, finally after the war, they sent us uh, to Berchtesgarden, Germany. This is where Hitler had his hideout in the, in the mountains up there, okay? And we had 400 SS German prisoners of war that we had to watch. Well, at that time, like I said, they put me in the kitchen. What could I do? So anyhow, I have another picture up there, I believe. Oh, that, that's you in the kitchen. Yeah, it's me in the kitchen. Uh, my staff sergeant and I had two prisoners of war that did uh, peeling potatoes and scrubbing the pots and pans. They were young, just like me. And one was Italian, and the other one was Polish. And they wanted to pay me to come to America. I says, well, I says, I can't take your money and I have no way to take you to America. But it was real nice. But these SS prisoners of war, let me tell you, they are killers. You know, like the one, I guess he was a colonel or something. He said, I have to get my hands on you. He says, you're dead. And he was like a six footer. You know, and here I was about five foot eight. So anyhow, uh, we finally uh, left Berchtesgarden, Germany. And, uh, well, I guess we took a boat back to 
the United States and then the Pennsylvania. And it was such an interesting war. I couldn't wait to get the hell out of it. <laughs> but anyhow, I want, to, I want to thank all you veterans for helping me win this war. <laughs> and, and I always close by saying, God bless everybody here. Thank you so much, Nick. We have a young vet with us today, Andrew Brennan. Andrew is also a West Pointer. I think you're the only West Point graduate here today. Oh, Megan, of course. Sorry. Yeah, no, we have two. Megan Andros, of course. Todd, you really had to, you had to make me follow Nick. Sorry. I mean, what? An, Nick, nobody could follow you, but you could try. Um, Andrew, what made you want to go to West Point, and when did you go? Sure. So, a uh, very similar story to Megan, uh, who is, we have an interesting connection from West Point. Uh, Megan was a senior in high school, and I was actually a junior in high school when 9-11 happened. And that's ultimately what kind of led both of us toward the academy. Uh, Megan played tennis there. And then when I showed up for cadet basic training, um, after I had gone to a year of uh, college at Carnegie Mellon University, before getting the academy, Megan was my squad leader during cadet basic training. So I owe all of my expert military knowledge and skills to Megan's leadership during basic training. So, <laughs> so she lives here in Pittsburgh with her husband, Dave, and uh, you know, she's not from Pittsburgh. I originally was. I grew up here uh, out in Penn Hills and went to Central Catholic. And uh, so I finally got back to Pittsburgh after 10 years. So you were at Central Catholic. What made you want to choose... West Point. So my yeah life plan to success was to go to Notre Dame and uh, become a lawyer. And 9/11 happened, and that had a pretty big impact on me. Um, like a lot of kids, you know, that were in high school during that uh, on that day, uh, my grandfather decided to uh, come pick me up early from school. And he was a World War II guy. Um, his three older brothers. He was like the youngest of 11 Irish Catholic family from Braddock. Um, he's a steam fitter, if anybody in here is a union steam fitter. At any rate, he came and picked me up early, and we were leaving Central's parking lot. And I got to tell you, we were probably 300 meters from Central, and uh, he said something along the lines of, you know, we were talking about you know, what had just transpired, and he said something along the lines of, you know, the war that's going to follow from this is going to impact your generation like it did mine. And he said, you need to be on the right side of that. Um, and that's something that's, you know, stuck with me to this day. So I changed my you know, life plan to success pretty radically after that and said, okay, I think I want to go to a service academy. And uh, every single school nurse throughout my entire educational career at that point had done me a significant disservice and passed me along on my eye test. So when I went to uh, get, my, get my physical done for the uh, service academies, I wanted to go to Navy and Air Force. Um, I wanted to fly fixed wing. And when I went in for my physical, they said, no, you're 2025 in one eye, 2035 in the other. So I didn't qualify because you had to be 2020 to fly in the Air Force or the Navy. But, you know, as the Army uh, typically always does, they'll take anyone. So <laughs> I, uh, after a year at Carnegie Mellon doing Navy ROTC, I was on a Navy ROTC scholarship. Uh, Congressman Murphy, who had just uh, moved into uh, office here locally, nominated me to go to West Point, And that's how I ended up there. And you were a helicopter pilot. 
I was uh, back when my life was fun and exciting. Yes. Blackhawk helicopter. Yeah, I flew Blackhawks. Um, so after I left the academy in 2008, that's when I graduated. I went down to Fort Rucker, got qualified in the Blackhawk. My first duty station was with the, was with the 10th Mountain Division. Are any 10th Mountain Division alum in the room by chance? So, can I ask you a really stupid question? Sure. This is the stupidest question you've ever heard. I'm gonna doubt that, but go ahead. Is it hard to fly a helicopter? It, it is challenging, especially right out of the gate, because um, so you know you have three main controls uh, on the aircraft. It doesn't make any sense to you initially, but it's just kind of one of those things. Like after about six to ten hours of flying, you kind of it clicks, you get it. You start to get the hang of it. Yeah. They, they refer to it as like hitting the hover button, like you understand what the aircraft's doing at that point. And some people can't even, like junior pilots can't even describe it to someone else. Like you couldn't teach someone else. You can just make it do what it's supposed to do. And Gotcha. So it, it kind of clicks, yeah. and then you could really refine your skill from there. Yep. So by the time you arrived in Afghanistan, when did you arrive? So I showed up uh, October 2010, and I was there for a year. So I left October 2011. So it was basically during the the surge uh, in Afghanistan. So when you arrived in 2010 in Afghanistan, you had probably put in so many hours of flying time. Nope. What? Nope, not at all. <laughs> no? No. Um, so I left, I left flight school with about 250 total hours and only about, uh, we'll say, actually, no, correction. I, I left with about 180 total hours, which is what you typically leave flight school with, and only about 40 of them were in the Blackhawk. We flew a training helicopter before that, much smaller, much less expensive to fly. And then when I got to my unit at Fort Drum, New York, we only had eight months to train up to get ready to leave. So uh, one of the courses they did send us to, which was very helpful, was this uh, high altitude training school. So we went out to Colorado near Vail, which is where the 10th Mountain Division Museum actually is. Um, ironically, and so we went to this school. We learned how to fly in higher altitudes for a week. Because is it tougher to fly? Much tougher um, at higher altitudes and at higher temperatures. Um, and this is for planes as well. Um, you're, the amount of lift that you can produce is much less because there's less, literally, there's less air in the atmosphere. So the rotor blades has have less particles to actually like bite on to produce lift from. So it requires more engine power. Therefore, you can carry less in the aircraft, and you're you, you get into very minimal power margins when you're trying to land a Black Hawk at, say, seven or eight or 9,000 feet. So did you feel ready when you arrived? And, uh, I mean, I felt ready in the sense that I knew that our battalion and, and uh, brigade leadership wouldn't ask us to go perform any missions that we weren't capable of as an individual pilot, if able. You know, there were a couple of missions that I went out on that... You know, after coming home, I remember just, you know, and they were mainly night missions where we were flying under night vision goggles. Um, I remember, you know, coming back and, you know, winding down the engines on the aircraft. So we were off communications and the crew chiefs were off comms and they were outside of the aircraft just letting the engines cool down. And I remember just kind of like taking my helmet off and, you know, there was a hook we had on the inside of the aircraft and hooking, you know, hooking my helmet on there and uh, just kind of taking a deep breath, you know, big sigh out, you know, blowout relief. Because um, I'll, you know, I was asked earlier today, you know, if I brought, if I ever brought an aircraft back with with battle damage from getting shot up, and the answer was no. Um, some of the aircraft in my company did, and it, we got shot at quite a bit. Like, it, but it was funny because it was very anticlimactic. Like, we would get a call from the ground unit saying, "Hey, you're getting shot at," and like, I mean, unless you're unless the aircraft's actually getting hit, like, you don't know. Um, and then one time, one of my crew chiefs was like, "Hey, I think somebody, yep, you know, somebody just shot an RPG at us," like, and it was just kind of 
over with already before we even realized it. Um, so how many missions did you fly in the year? I flew a total of 48 combat missions for a total of about 250 hours. I got to go on one, I'll say, cool guy mission. Um, we actually did one deliberate operation, and that was funny because um, it was kind of a, um, I'll say, like a, a perfect storm. Uh, we had most of our company, and when I, when I said earlier about, you know, I, I was confident in our battalion and brigade leadership wouldn't put me as a junior pilot at risk. They always partnered the junior pilots, you know, myself with like, say, two to 250 to 300 flight hours at the beginning of the deployment with a more senior warrant officer that had 2,500 to 2,000 flight hours. Um, so you had a junior pilot with a senior pilot. Well, we had a mission that we um, were tasked with sending a bunch of more seasoned pilots up to a different part of Afghanistan because the vice president was visiting. So they needed to do some security operations up there uh, for his visit. And I was left back at the base, was on the daily mission set, and one of my West Point classmates was the battle captain. So he was the guy on you know the radio doing everything for the battalion. And uh, we got done with our, we'd flown about four or five hours that day. We got done with our mission and uh, still had you know five, six hours left in, in the day, but uh, we were done and uh, called in and he said, hey, uh, we got something something going on. Leave your gear in the aircraft, get in here to the, to the talk, the tactical operations center. So anyways, we ended up executing a daylight, um, a daylight raid with, uh, with the local ground unit and they actually captured, I want to say it was seven or eight people on the uh, local JPEL list, which was basically the local FBI 10 most wanted, we'll say, for the local area. And two of them were the uh, Afghan theater JPEL list. So we executed a very haphazardly planned daylight mission. And, and the only reason that mission even executed was the warrant officer that I was flying with. Um, and, and I was, for that mission in particular, I was at a different location working for a different battalion. So the battalion commander didn't know me. I was, you know, I'd only probably been there for three, four weeks. And uh, the mission, that only reason that mission executed, because we were literally the only crew that could fly it. Um, he walked in and after we had been briefed on the mission and everything, battalion commander pulled the pilot I was flying with out of the office and said, hey, can the, uh, can the you know, green lieutenant handle this? And, and Rod Williams, the guy I was flying, he's like, yeah, he's good. We'll be fine. So, You know, I've been talking with a lot of post 9-11 veterans like you, young vets who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And one thing that comes up is they talk about that it is kind of tough to come back from that very intense year uh, in combat to co come back home and kind of live an ordinary civilian life again. Did you find that to be true? I did, and um, you know, and, and I'd say you know that, that spans across generations. Yeah, um, it is a little different for the global war on terror era veterans because I mean, how long did it take some of you guys that were World War II? How long did sir? How long did it take you to get get back to the United States after you left Europe or? or the Pacific? I can't tell you because it covered a period of time. I was on the island of Trinidad when the war ended, so I had to stay there for a while, and then it took me uh, maybe a couple hours to fly from Trinidad to Miami, Florida. But from Miami, Florida, to get into Gap, Pennsylvania, I can't remember how many days it was. But it took a, it took a long time to get through the process. The war ended in... Uh, when I was in Trinidad, and about uh, four or five months later, I got discharged. But I played football while I was waiting to get discharged. I'll tell you about that some other time. Walt was drinking rum and Coca-Cola in Trinidad. Got it. You didn't have to say that. So the, the post-9-11 veterans uh, are, are a little different in the sense that, you know, I, I think October 4th, I left uh, 
I left Afghanistan and I was, you know, having a, um, I was having a ribeye at Texas Roadhouse on October 6th with my dad. So you go from in combat to, you know, less than 48 hours later, you're, you're home. Um, and, and, you know, and that's been repeated. You know, I, I was only gone for a year, but uh, the unit that I fell in on, um, they had been the aviation unit that I was a platoon leader in and then later a staff officer. Some of my guys that, you know, from my platoon, I mean, my unit had been deployed a year on, a year off, for they were heading into their eighth year. So they had been deployed four of eight years. And some of the members of my platoon had been deployed literally half of that eight-year period. And it was every time it was they went from in combat to two to three days later, they're back in the United States. So it's, uh, it's, a, different, uh, it's a different transition to do that. And then as far as when I actually got out of the Army and life was concerned, I did exactly what I thought I was supposed to do. I, um, I went through a junior military officer recruiting firm. I got placed with a Fortune 100 company. And I you know, started work. I went to work as a supervisor in a distribution facility. And about three months into that job, I kind of realized this wasn't my my second calling in life, but uh, you know, hey, it was a job and it was a, a good paying job and I wasn't gonna you know, turn my nose up at that necessarily, especially with unemployment being what it was and, and the like. But, uh, but I still didn't just, I just didn't have any passion for it. I wasn't interested in the work I was doing. And um, so after about a year and a half, I left that and I went hiking for six months on the Continental Divide Trail to kind of give myself an idea what I wanted to do moving forward. Cause and the program I did that was was a was a veteran nonprofit called Warrior Hike. And the intent uh, does anybody know who Earl Schaefer is by chance? Anybody remember that name? Oh, yeah, obviously Kevin's hiked the Appalachian Trail. So Earl Schaefer is the first person to ever hike the entire length of the Appalachian Trail. He's a World War II vet, and he did it in 1948. And he told his friends before he was going to go hike the trail, "I'm going to go walk off the war." So. In the same sense, this nonprofit warrior hike uh, was designed to allow veterans to kind of come to terms with their wartime experiences because we didn't have the, you know, a couple of months, you know, sitting after the war ended, you know, in Trinidad or, um, you know, the... What? <laughs> sitting in Trinidad? Maybe not sitting, oh. but... Andrew, you're creating a problem here. I, I don't mean to be doing that. But, you know, we didn't have that, you know, month-long journey on a... A transport ship back where you have time to kind of decompress and maybe talk about things with your, you know, your friends that you served with, you know, deployed and in combat and kind of come to terms with things. You go from in combat to back in the United States going to a movie or going to Starbucks to get a coffee. And that's, that's, that's a very different uh, transition back to civilian life. So anyways, while I was out hiking, um, I uh, gave myself some time to think, kind of come to terms with the wartime experiences and, uh, and I gave myself six months to figure out what I wanted to do moving forward in life, and I figured it out in six weeks. So, and now that's part of the reason I ended up back here in Pittsburgh. I'm a, I'm a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and this is what I work on now. So, um, so for anybody who's been to D.C. and has been to your war memorial, um, the Korea and the World War II or the Vietnam War Memorial, I'm leading the group that is looking to get a global war on terror memorial built on the National Mall in D.C. We got some pretty notable individuals for anybody that's a Vietnam era guy and remembers Jan Scruggs, who was the gentleman that led. He is advising our group. Um, General David Petraeus is on board. General George Casey, former chief of staff of the Army. Um, so we got some pretty notable people. And literally, I came to this idea after bumping into um, the run for the wall, which I had known nothing about. But that is the cross-country motorcycle ride that starts in L.A., 
two weeks before Memorial Day weekend, and they do a cross-country motorcycle ride and pick up veterans all the way across the country, and they get to Memorial Day week or get to Washington D.C. for Memorial Day weekend, and it's like 500,000 people descend on the mall. So these really awesome traditions that started around the Vietnam Wall mainly. Um, as I bumped into this group in Albuquerque while I was hiking, I was impressed with the, just the camaraderie of this group of veterans. And, um, and I said, you know, I, I really want this for my era, but, you know, I don't want to see the, the momentum that this group of veterans has created. And because, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but at the age of most Vietnam era veterans, you know, and this will happen to my generation at some point too, you're going to be trading in the Harleys and Goldwings, you know, probably in the next 10 to 15 years for, we'll say less exciting means of transportation. And I want my group era to pick up the ball and continue these awesome traditions that you all have started. Uh, and not that we would have any issues going and paying tribute to what, you know, you did during your era's war, but, um, you know, it stands to reason that we would eventually want our own memorial on the mall. So uh, that's what uh, that's what I'm working on nowadays. And Kevin Farkas made a beautiful two-minute video for you guys um, promoting the idea of having a global war on terror a memorial on the mall. I'd like to play it for you because I just think it's so well done. Here in the company of the generation that won the war, I proudly accept the World War II Memorial on behalf of the people of the United States of America. Today we are surrounded by monuments to some of the greatest figures in our history while we gather at this national memorial to remember and honor the Americans who fought for freedom in Korea. This monument also will serve as a symbol of hope to the Congress of the United States and to the leaders of America that we indeed have a debt to the men and women who served in Vietnam. A debt is yet to be repaid, particularly for those who need special help. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Our war on terror, it will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found stopped and defeated. Post 9-11 veterans are a different breed of veteran, so I would, I would imagine that a post 9-11 memorial would be different than the existing memorials. Post 9-11 veterans need our own memorial because we owe it to these young men and women that gave their lives, uh, that they're not forgotten, that we can teach future generations about what selflessness, what courage really is. The post-9-11 veterans need a memorial so that we can go there and celebrate the life that they served honoring their country to allot us the freedoms that we have today. I have three children and it's hard to, I can tell them my story, but it's hard to express the kind of the breadth and the, the, the gravity of our, what we did there. And I think a memorial represents that and it presents a legacy that will span across to my grandchildren, to my great-great-grandchildren. We need a memorial to heal. We need a memorial to honor. We need a memorial to remember. We need a memorial to educate future generations of Americans about our nation's longest war and the men and women who served in it. I would imagine, Andrew, that it's a long darn process to get a memorial on the in Washington, D.C. It is. There's a couple of major challenges, and when I first um, when I first did the initial kind of, we'll say, mission analysis on how to do this, um, I reached out to Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund because they were the nonprofit that helped get the Vietnam Wall built. 
And uh, one of the things they told me was that four years after the Vietnam Wall went up, so the Vietnam Wall was erected in 1982, four years later, there was this piece of legislation passed called the 1986 Commemorative Works Act. And I don't fault the legislators of the day because obviously they were you know, using the knowledge that they had in 1986, but they put a stipulation in the legislation that 10 years had to have passed from the official end of hostilities of a war or conflict before Congress could give approval for a war to be considered for a memorial. The intent behind that was they wanted to make sure that, you know, that conflict, you know, let's say, you know, move the needle enough, we'll say, to warrant space on the National Mall. I don't think anybody had anticipated a war that would go 15 plus years. I mean, democracies typically don't go to war. I mean, historically, not just the US, democracies throughout the world have never gone to war for longer than eight years. I mean, that's just, this is an abnormality. So um, what we're pushing to do is to even allow us to be able to have this memorial. Uh, we're pushing to get that legislation amended so that you know, we can keep the 10 year restriction, but we want it to also read 10 years comma, uh, unless the war itself extends beyond 10, year, 10 years, at which point Congress could consider it for a memorial. So, um, so the reason that no one had been working on that yet was because, because that legislation was in place. So right. I put together a team to hopefully persuade Congress to uh, amend the legislation and allow us to, to build the memorial. So plus I also have to raise $100 million, which That's minor detail, hurdle. that's second step. But <laughs> Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate it. Michael, happy Vietnam Veterans Day, Michael. Thanks. <laughs> That's you. Yeah, 100 pounds ago. Where was that taken? That picture's in um, Uban, Thailand, which is right on the border of Laos. I had the uh, thrill of uh, being assigned to a C-130 gunship security. I was uh, in security police in the Air Force. Uh, actually, in the Air Force, I had the chance to guard three of the uh, most unique things in the world. I had my first station was in the White Sands Missile Range in the middle of the desert in New Mexico, where uh, New Mexico is known for a lot of weird things going on that the government doesn't want to talk about. I used to guard a rocket sled that was over one mile long, had a large pound of water at the very end of it, with television cameras all along the way, and they shot monkeys in that rocket sled, and then when the rocket sled crashed into the water, it stopped immediately scrambled the brains of the monkeys to test what G-forces impacted our pilots. And that's uh, how they did a lot of the testing out in the middle of the, that was classified then. That's not classified now. You can Google it and go on there and watch those uh, rocket slips. Uh, then when I was in uh, Uban, I guarded the, uh, was assigned to the C-130 gunships, which were very famous Spectre gunships, very black painted C-130s that took out the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and we had a full wing of F-4D fighter jets also that were supporting our troops in uh, Vietnam. And Michael, you've come to a, a, our North Hills breakfast and talked about your service there, and that's when I learned about how uh, Thailand was really involved in the Vietnam War in a big, big way. Did you think you'd be sent to Thailand? Or, uh, I didn't even know where it was when... Um, when I got my orders, I remember going to look to see where it was, and uh, all I remember was, great, I'm not going to Vietnam. It was interesting. There were 21 people in my unit that got orders to go to Southeast Asia, and 19 of them went to Vietnam, 
and my best buddy and I, he went to Udorn and I went to Uban. You see Uban up there in the lower right, or middle right side near Laos, 15 minutes to the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So uh, it was a very, very active base and uh, a, lot, a lot going on in, in Thailand. And one of your jobs was to prevent Viet Cong from infiltrating the air base, correct? Yeah, well, I think there's a photo of a 65-foot tower. When you start at a base over there, um, the worst job you can get is exactly where I ended up. In a monsoon rain, 65 foot up on the Constantine wire, watching for Viet Cong crawling through the wire to get to the C-130s. It is raining every which way you can imagine. And there you are up there by yourself thinking, if all hell breaks loose, what the hell am I gonna do up here all by myself? So you're all by yourself. Totally by yourself. In fact, uh, you learn real fast, you should use the restroom facilities before you go up there. Uh, what if you're afraid of heights? Doesn't matter, you uh, learn to get over it. So uh, you climb up there, you're up there for eight or nine hours, raining like crazy, and right in front of you are about eight wires, and those wires run all the way down to the ground on the Constantina wire where there's Claymore mines. And uh, you would wait for the Viet Cong to just slowly try to attack, crawl through the wire, and then when they get in the right spot, you just tug on that wire and make their day. Right there, right there in that spot. So uh, when you graduate, get out of the towers, you just worked your wealth into a bunkers and kept working yourself uh, back, so. Oh, so you get a bunker after you graduate yeah, from you the... you graduate from that into a bunker, which is an M60 machine gun position with a Thai Air Force National. When you're in Thailand in the military, technically we were the guests of the Thai government, so um, they had to have a Thai soldier in the bunker. They didn't go up in the tower with you, those suckers wouldn't do it. But uh, uh, they were in the bunker with you, and the first thing they did, of course, is went to sleep. So... Uh, they were of no use, but you had to have one in your bunkers. And you talked about, and I've heard this from so many of the Vietnam vets, the rats in Southeast Asia are gigantic. Well, yeah, I remember as I was standing in the bunker, I could hear them. I knew they were at my feet. Of course, it's pouring rain, and you can see the big holes in the ground. And I, by the way, this gentleman is a graduate of West Point also. Sorry, Brian. I didn't acknowledge that you're a graduate of West Point. Three I just West saw that as I saw that handsome guy there, and I said, "And I'm in this bunker, and I know I got these rats all around me." Now I'm not a rat guy or a snake guy. I'm not real keen on that stuff, but you're watching. You're sitting there in the rain or whatever. So I had a plan. They brought me one of these box lunches, and we used to get the, you know, you'd get the bologna sandwich just thrown together with an apple. Well, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this apple. I'm gonna set it right out alongside the bunker. I climbed up on the roof of the bunker with a sandbag, and I said, when the rat comes out to get the apple, I'm gonna nail that sucker. <laughs> so I'm standing there just like this, and this rat comes out, and it's so big, I never threw the damn bag. <laughs> it was as big as a cat. This thing was so big. And I, oh my God, then I went back in the bunker and I just said, I'm not going to think about this anymore. I'm just not going to do it. And you know, I never, it didn't ever bite your body, but they were so big. I just couldn't believe it, but I never threw the bag. It put that whole apple right in its mouth and walked right away. I, I said, oh my God, I got to get out of here. The third great thing I got to guard was Bob Hope. And uh, this was a great joy. 
when you're security and you got to get this close to them. And uh, I, being I got in country in March, I only had about 90, 100 days to go. And um, he had a picture, you might guys remember the name Vita Blue, was uh, along with him and Miss World, that her claim to fame was she was a roller skater. But anyway, uh, to see Bob Hope was a great thing, but what it did is it made me so homesick. Uh, it wasn't funny, so uh, that was a great thing. You're here in part because you wrote a book about your father-in-law. I did, and um, I'll be here with that book. Um, God bless all you World War II veterans. When I started to research this about my father-in-law, I learned more about you. And uh, the more I read, the more I love every one of you and what you did. But I wrote this book about my father-in-law because uh, he dramatically changed my life as I learned about him. Let me just tell about him briefly, but I think you'd love to have my book. Uh, not that it's such a great book, but it's because of his story. My father-in-law was born in 1920. And for many people, the 1920s were the Roaring Twenties, but many of you know it to be a very poor time. My father-in-law's mother died when he was age two during childbirth. Both his mother and the baby passed away. He was raised by his father. He made his living by bootlegging whiskey and counterfeiting nickels. My father-in-law ended up in the uh, army. He had no skills whatsoever when they asked him what he could do. So they did some testing, and they said, Mr. Dilliman, you have stereoscopic vision. There he is there, all five foot eight, 130 pounds. When we buried him three years ago, he was exactly the same. Weight never varied more than five pounds his entire life. There he is there in a bunker. That picture's taken in France. But Papa, with this vision, there he is. Uh, he was very lucky, by the way. He told me, he said, that I got one of these white coats because he could be disguised from the enemy. He talked about how many people would steal sheets from homes that they passed to protect themselves, and he was lucky enough to be able to have one of those white coats. His stereoscopic vision meant that he had the ability to line up two lines looking through a scope so that he could line up aircraft for them to be shot at. So that meant that he stood right alongside of all the AAA anti-aircraft guns. And look at the size of this piece of equipment. It's ridiculous. This was the precursor of a lot of the radar sighting devices that they had. And he headed this. He had the vision to spot it. And so he landed at Utah Beach, went all the way across Europe. Any of you, how many of you knew about the Red Ball Express? I had to deal with that as you went through. Papa hitched a ride with them sometimes and ended up at the Battle of the Bulge. When he got out of the military, he got a job in Butler, Pennsylvania in the steel mills. And unfortunately, he got in the mills where there was that pounding, pounding, pounding. And he had spent his whole time in the war right alongside of those large guns. In 1948, my father-in-law ran out of the steel mills in Butler, Pennsylvania crazy. He had lost his mind. They ran him to the Butler VA and put him in solitary confinement. And in 1948, actually considered giving him electrical shock treatments, trying to save him from stress. By the way, for those of you that battle the VA to get benefits, this occurred in 1948. He finally got $191 a month out of the VA in 1991 fought 45 years to get any benefit for the stress that he went through. My father-in-law was in solitary confinement. On the 13th day in confinement, 
for out of sheer boredom, he started to read a Gideon Bible that was in that room. Two days later, got on his knees, said, Jesus, save my life. I will work for you the rest of my life. Two days after that, a day, uh, days after that, a man appeared at the door, said, Mr. Dilliman, you're perfectly fine. You can go home. He had never seen a doctor. He went home to his wife. She said, my God, you have such changed man. Let's get married again. I don't even recognize you from the way you were when you went in. He became Electrolux salesman, the number three Electrolux salesman in the United States. In 1970, my father-in-law made 60,000. Vacuum 000. cleaners, right? Electrolux vacuum cleaners. I'm dating myself. <laughs> 1970, he was making $60,000 a year selling an $80 vacuum cleaner door to door. And he made a little book. You have one. He probably sold it to you. <laughs> and he had a little bitty book. And he told everyone about Jesus as he went along his path. And when he died, he had led over 2,000 people to Jesus Christ and his life as a lay minister and was the number three salesman for Electrolux Vacuum. I tell this story because I try to encourage people, and that's why I wrote the book. No matter how small you are, how bleak things look, there's, it can be done. There's a better way out there for you. And I love him and miss him so much. I would watch him go about his day, but I think back to the war. Gee, I wish I would have asked him more questions. First of all, he would have saved me about a year of research on the book, but there was more. But God bless. By the way, how about a hand for Todd? What he does for everyone, you know, we do all this stuff, and it seems like we never get a chance to thank him. But he got me to come to this, and um, I'm so grateful that... Uh, I'm not an author. Uh, I, I wrote this book. I'm not writing another one. Uh, I have great respect for authors and the work that it takes. But the stories like this, like you, are worth it. And thank you for recording the things that you do, too, Todd. Thank you. We have a few more pictures of Howard. Renee, do you want to? There's there the... he is. See, this is what they generally did. They buried it in the ground and then tried to sight it to the planes, and then they called the coordinates to the gunners. And that was a range finder. That is. Right? The, it's called a range finder? Yeah, if you Google that, you'll see there's a club in California that tries to collect these. And that's, that's my father. We call him Papa right here in the front looking toward you. He would be looking in that device. Imagine lugging that thing all the way across Europe and trying to sight aircraft. And I've got to say, if you look at that picture, look at the landscape. That's a battlescape. Yep. I, I mean, mean those are, really that's bombed a bombed out. out terrain, and it gives you a sense of the kind of devastation that he saw. Rene, could you advance there? Then when, of course, he's not doing that, he's an infantryman just like anybody else. Grab a good weapon and... Uh, Fire away, and uh, that's Papa doing that there, too. One more, Renee. One of his favorite photos. I don't know where he got this, but you know, when people ask me for a copy of my pictures, this is the one they always want. <laughs> they want to use this slide. That's an interesting one. And there's another interesting one, I think, to end on. There he's shooting down a buzz bomb, and uh, Papa had this little camera, and he these are actually his pictures, and I don't know how he had this along as he went across Europe. So we have all these little black and white pictures. They can't be but about two inches by three inches in all black and white, and they're of him holding uh, prisoners of war and all kinds of things, and the photos are just, just remarkable. So is that a V-1 rocket? Does anybody recognize? Is that what that is, a, a buzz bomb, a I V-1? I thought it was a V-1. But V-1? Okay. 
And if somebody wants to buy a copy of your book, will you be around after? Some here, if they would want to, I would appreciate it very much. And uh, either way, um, thank you for all of your service, too. Many of you have stories and went through the hardships like my father-in-law did. He dealt with the mental illness, the rest of us. My wife used to talk about her dad would be so stressed out that he'd go up to his bedroom and take every single thing out of the dresser and set it on the bed. Put his socks, then his shirt, then his pants. And then he'd pick them all back up and put them back in the drawer and put them. Then he'd go down to the refrigerator and take every item out of the refrigerator. Something to get his mind active so that he quit thinking about the experiences that he'd had. So it's a challenge for all of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming. This is our, our oldest veteran today here, John DeLalo. John, this is a picture of you when you retired from the Air Force. No, actually, that's my enlistment photo. Uh. So I asked John, I said, John, could you send me a picture of yourself in the service? This is what he sent me. And the, and the reason I, I, I sent it, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was in for 20 years. I retired uh, as a master sergeant, but I, I have to be completely honest. I did absolutely nothing that even approached heroics in 20 years and 21 days of military service. But it was my honor to have served in the company of some real heroes. And there's some real heroes sitting right here in this room. Uh, I don't want to belittle my service, but, you know, I mean, I was in combat support. And somebody said, oh, wow, combat support. I said, yeah, the Air Force, if you were flying a desk, they didn't want you to feel bad, so they threw combat in front of the word support so that you'd feel like you were doing something. So why did you join the Air Force and when did you join? Well, I joined in October of 1968, and that was because I had a full scholarship to Penn State, and I majored in beer drinking 101 and did very, very well. Uh, the rest of my studies were pretty bad. I ended up with a 1.8 grade point average, academic probation, and honest to God, it was like a scene out of Animal House. Uh, we'll be notifying your draft board. <laughs> I enlisted October the 28th. I got my draft notice November the 15th. So, again, not a hero. <laughs> enlisted to avoid the draft. You must have liked it, though. You stayed in. Uh, it was... Uh, I got enlightened in the Air Force, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I was never really forward-looking, but I always thought to myself, you know, this, this really isn't a bad gig. We eat good. Uh, there's, you know, the only drawback was when I was in, there were 91, I believe, flying wings uh, in the continental United States, and as we used to say, all but two of them sucked. Uh, if, you, if you got McDill, yeah, man, <laughs> and if you got Nellis, even better. Uh, I ended up in Del Rio, Texas. That was one of two bases that were being considered for a remote tour here in the continental United States. There's Del, Del Rio and uh, good old Why Not Minot up in the Dakotas. And that was considered a remote tour. Oh, God. We were, my wife was pregnant with, with our first child, and she started jonesing for a Big Mac. It took... Three hours and 150 miles one way to get to the nearest McDonald's. 
I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's so appropriate that you're here today because one of your most vivid memories, at least that we've emailed back and forth about each other with, is, is um, Operation Homecoming, the end of the Vietnam War after the signing of the peace treaty in January 1973. And you were a part of that. Your airlift wing was a part of that. And Renee, you were with the 374th. I was with the 374th Tactical Airlift Wing, sort of, kind of. Uh, that's a long story, and I'll save that for another day. But our personnel records were kept by the 374th. I was actually stationed, and on this map, you'll see on the far left-hand side, just about in the middle, number 14. And that was a Chinese Army hotel for visiting uh, military. And that's where I lived for a year. Uh, you'll see uh, up the top where it says Taichung City. If you continued out that road, you would end about a half hour later at CCK Air Force Base. And the reason, that's an unofficial patch. And that's an interesting story. Uh, I didn't get to CCK very often because we lived and we worked in Taichung City, uh, uh, supporting uh, uh, a, a number of different, uh, whether it was Navy, Army, Air Force, and some other people that I probably can't still talk about. But anyway, I was at CCK uh, before the uh, uh, repatriation, and we were walking along the flight line. A friend of mine was a mechanic. And I happened to glance up the end of the flight line, and I said, what kind of C-130 is that up there? He says, what's C-130? Is that one up there on the end of the flight line? And he repeated, what's C-130? Is that one up there, that goofy-colored thing with the widgets hanging out of it? And he says, there's no C-130 there. I said, what you do? He says, hey, dummy, <laughs> that airplane's not there. <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it briefly here to why that airplane wasn't there. This is the guy, the Wizard of Oz. Now, he was a bird colonel, and he was my squadron commander. Now, Colonel Osway uh, had two things going for him. He, he was absolutely... I mean, brave, uh, I said before, I did nothing heroic, but I had uh, the opportunity to serve in the company of heroes. This guy was a great squadron commander, and he had stones. I mean, he, he really did. He volunteered for a mission that I'm pretty sure nobody in here would knowingly volunteer for. And the Wizard of Oz said, I'll do it. I got your back. And that, of course, was the repatriation of our POWs. That is not the C-130 that was on the end of the ramp. Because to this day, I'm not real, real sure exactly what that C-130 is. That is an EC-130. That's an actual aircraft that exists. Uh, but that's not the one that was uh, on the flight line uh, at uh, uh, CCK Air Base. That's the one that everybody knows about, the C-141 Starlifter. And if you recall all of the, uh, uh, the news clips at the time and so on and so forth and the photographs of the men inside, uh, this was the aircraft that actually brought the guys from Jai Lam Airport in Hanoi to Clark Air Force Base and then back on to the United States. For uh, particularly uh, Navy pilots, if we have any Navy drivers in here, uh, feet wet uh, was a term that meant we're over the water. And somebody screamed out feet wet, 
and this picture was taken because and these are POWs. These from are Vietnam. these are the POWs on a C-141 Starlifter. They were terrified, and our trust of the North Vietnamese was such that going in, and I'll, I'll swing back to Colonel Osway and, and uh, the Wizard of Oz, but these guys were absolutely positively not convinced that that aircraft was going to leave the dirt over North Vietnam. A lot of these guys thought they were going to be shot down and, and, uh, and killed. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, trust, if you will. That had been built up. And obviously everybody was uh, very happy. You know, all of us, everybody in here was happy the day that we got home. But I can assure you, nobody was happier than those POWs being uh, repatriated with their families. And this, I think this photo appeared in Life magazine. And I'm not sure the, uh, uh, the officer, and you can tell by the braid on his cap, that's uh, one of the officers that was repatriated. And that, that photo, I think, was taken in Hawaii. Now, I wanted to get back to Colonel Osway and, you know, one of my personal heroes. And what did he do? He piloted the first aircraft, which happened to be a C-130, that ever flew into Jilam Airport in Hanoi in 19 years. It was himself, a hand-picked crew, and Air Force combat controllers flying into an unknown airbase, not really known if they were going to be blown out of the sky either. And those are the guys that set up all of the navigational aids so that the C-141s could get a homing beacon and get on a runway there at Jai Lam. The C-141 crews were instructed, you will not get out of your aircraft. Absolutely positively, you will not get out of your aircraft. The C-130 crews, obviously, you know, loadmasters and what have you. And there was a staff sergeant named Ron Zagoda. He was a loadmaster, and he worked for Colonel Oswald. He was part of that volunteer crew. And he saw that that first POW that they had released was having a dickens of a time trying to get from the release point to the C-141. And without any prompting and anybody telling him to go do it, Zagoda went over, took that man by the arm, and got him on the aircraft, while the C-141 crews obeyed their orders and stayed on board the aircraft. Every subsequent freedom flight, members of the 374th Tactical Airlift Wing escorted prisoners of war to the 141s. And that's, uh, that's my story. That's my hero. Uh, I'm not. The Wizard of Oz was and is, uh, in my mind, he retired as a four-star general in uh, 1986. I haven't kept up with him. I'm not sure if he's still, uh, still with us or not, but uh, there are a lot of brave guys that were never recognized, never made the newspapers, and he, uh, he certainly was uh, the cream of the crop. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, John. And John reminds me to mention that I would love for you to bring your photos of yourself in the service if you haven't done so already. John emailed them to me. Uh, Rick, who we're going to talk to next. Get ready, Rick. Uh, Rick brought photos into a breakfast, and I just make copies with my camera. I just take a picture of the picture. I don't have to keep the photos. Uh, I just like to make a copy of them, and then I put them up on the screen in a subsequent breakfast. So please, if you do have photos of yourself in the service, 
Bring them in. All right? Rick, 4th Infantry Division, Vietnam. Happy Vietnam Veterans Day, Rick. When did you join the Army? Were you drafted? I was drafted and uh, subsequently uh, wound up in Vietnam. When were you drafted? In uh, 65. Oh, 65, early on. Right. Had you heard of Vietnam? I mean, it was just building uh, at that was, time. It uh, was just a, a glimpse in the, in the news at that, at that point. So there was not much going on, but it was starting to build up. Did you have a sense that you were going to be going or no? There was a possibility, yes. Okay. Yes. When did you arrive in Vietnam? Uh, it was somewhere around August of 66. August 66. Somewhere in What that. was your first impression? Very hot. When we came off the ship, uh, there was like 5,000 guys on the, on the ca uh, troop carrier. And we had a, a convoy also uh, coming across. It took 21 days from uh, the port of Tacoma to uh, Cameron Bay. So you went the old-fashioned way aboard right, ship. Right. There was a huge convoy. Uh, Did you get seasick? No. no. You didn't? I, I was one of the You can see I'm obsessed with seasickness. Yes, I, I got you. But uh, no, I didn't have any problem. Okay. No. I would have. Uh, so we landed, uh, and at first, you know, first glance, it looked fine. I mean, there were, there were uh, cargo ships unloading uh, motorcycles up the bay and down the bay there was other vehicles running around people here and there where's the war uh, yeah it, it was fine of course we came aboard uh came off the ship with our uh, rucksacks helmet a wall bag and a rifle with no ammunition so we thought you know this this isn't too bad uh that lasted about a week and this was uh real real close to where the uh south china sea so we, we got to swim there every day uh, for about a week. And then as, as time went on, we wound up moving up north about uh, 10 miles from the Cambodian border. Oh, okay. And that's, that's where we spent the bulk of our time. And this picture is of you going? That's, that's on the ship going over. Right? Going over. Right. Can, uh, next photo, Renee, I think that's also, is, what's that? That's, that's LSTs. Basically, they used them in the Second World War also. And that's what we went ashore on and uh, basically had to climb into there. And uh, naturally, the fellows running the ship, uh, okay, ladies, get on here and we're going we're gonna to go ashore now. And that's also and that's on? That's just a typical view of everybody, you know, watching the water. <laughs> okay, okay. Next one, Renee? Uh, that gets a little more exciting. Uh, we're, we're coming into a landing zone uh, I happened to be uh, one of the fortunate ones. I was in a mortar platoon, so uh, I was not pounding the, the, the brush like a lot of folks were. So, What were we, you doing? I was in a mortar platoon. I was a, mortar, a gunner. So that so meant... We, we set up a defensive ring. I was in a battalion position. We had 4.2-inch mortars, 81-millimeter mortars, and we defended our, our perimeter and supported our troops out in the field. So you would go out in the field with them. Oh, yeah. They would go on patrol, and you would maintain the right. command post or whatever? In about a week's time, we would move probably about two or three positions. So that meant digging foxholes, uh, setting up gun positions. Uh, and at the time, there was a uh, decree, I guess you would say, from up above that you had to dig in, which meant you had to actually dig a hole in the ground, fill sandbags, cut trees down, cover your pit, put two layers of sandbags on that every time you moved. 
So you would be in one position for two days, and then you'd be doing that again. So just when you got it done, the orders were to move out. Because our troops were advancing so much, that's what we had to do. We had to keep up with them. And in a battalion-sized situation, we had uh, 105 howitzers, uh, 8-inch guns, mounted guns. Uh, So we had all kind of support, but we still got mortared and uh, small arms fire. Can you remember your first experience of combat? Uh, actually, we, ju- we just got fire missions to support our troops. That's how our initiation into battle went. We, ha- we did have a couple of uh, instances where uh, we would hold perimeter positions around our, our camp. And uh, at night, there was always a-, a password and a counter password. So if somebody came up on your position, naturally you would uh, say whatever the password was, and they w- were expected to say the counter password. Well, our sergeant, who is uh, not a very well-liked man, was voted most likely not to come back due to friendly fire on the ship going over. <clears throat> so at any rate, he, he was making his rounds going around the perimeter, checking, and uh, as it happens, he came from, not from the back, but from the side and towards the front of this one position. And uh, the fellow uh, said, what's the password? And he says, uh, this is Sergeant so-and-so. I was not going to say his name. And he says, uh, well, what's the password? And he, still, he says, it's me. It's Sergeant so-and-so. He locked and loaded a run in the chamber. He says, apple, apple, apple. <laughs> and then he let him advance because that was the password. Right. <laughs> but uh, it sort of put some uh, gravity to the situation. So this was just a typical... Oh, there's a, a mass being set out in a field on some sea ration crates. Was that typical out in the field? Uh, you would Occasionally we would have a priest come out, non-denominational sometimes, but this would happen to be a Catholic priest. And uh, How long would you be out in the field at a time? I always. Mean, without, how long would you go without bathing? Here's another way to, way to put it. Oh, God. Uh, probably too long. About a week or maybe okay. more. I mean, you would wear the same clothes day in, day out until they brought some fresh clothes out to you, or you had a, a spare set in your rucksack. Okay. But other than that, uh, if we, there happened to be a stream coming through the, the camp, that's where you got bathed. No uh, shower facilities whatsoever uh, to do your business. You just went off into the weeds and uh, took care of business. But, uh, you know, the, the food was... Mm, we had, we had uh, a mess area in, on site, this was out in the boonies, and uh, uh, occasionally you got some hot, hot foods shipped in by helicopter to where you're at. We had uh, turkey for Christmas or for Thanksgiving, and then we had a nice Christmas dinner. I actually turned 21 over there myself, and my mother actually had uh, sent me a bottle of Sigrams in a Mother's Oats package, and it, and it actually made it. And uh, right, right after I received that, well, I shared it with our, the guys I was with. But uh, right after that happened, we moved like every day for a week. And I never got a chance to write home. Well, she thought I got wiped out, and she wouldn't send me anymore. <laughs> so, uh, What is this here? That's, that's a typical emplacement. Uh, you can see on the left side, uh, there's a 4.2-inch mortar. Uh, with rings, sandbag ring around it, and our gun in place, or our 
sleeping quarters, basically, where the slits are, are underground bunkers with trees cut down and sandbags on top of them. There's a shot from helicopter to helicopter. That's where we, we traveled mostly on helicopters. And back in the States, whenever they had the helicopter training, I was in the hospital for a week, so I never got any helicopter training as far as getting in, getting out, so forth. So it was no big deal, except for the very first time we had a disembark from a helicopter, and we were about six foot above the ground. And I looked out, and he says, uh, aren't you going to get in a little closer? And he goes, nope. <laughs> so People this, like Andrew. So this, this, was, this, those this was with a, uh, a rucksack and a helmet and, a, oh, I can't and, a, and an M16, a 45. You know, yeah. A six-foot jump with all that weight on you is... Yeah, you, you feel it. Yeah. Uh, basically, this was a uh, weapons cache that we got off of uh, some of the not-so-fortunate enemy who passed away. And uh, they were just on display. You know. Let me ask you, you heard me ask Andrew what it's like to come back. You did 12 months in Vietnam, I assume? I did uh, 11 months and nine days. What happened? The 21 days getting over there counted for my Okay, year. okay. <laughs> what was it like coming back? I imagine that was a very intense, sometimes scary year. And you come back. Yeah. What was it like to come back home? Uh, no fanfare whatsoever. We landed in San Francisco. I had a uh, steak breakfast. We got a brand new set of uh, uniform. And that was it. You were on your own. You got muster out pay and uh, good luck. So, uh, was it hard to readjust to civilian life after having an experience like that? Sure. Yeah. What was I, hard about it? Well, everything. I mean, uh, the, you don't you don't have any of this back here, so it's it's a completely different ball game. I remember going in town, uh, going on interviews, and a car backfired and I hit the ground. You know, so uh, that's a little different. You don't you normally see somebody jumping down on the ground down down Pittsburgh. <laughs> okay. I've heard this before and I just want to get a picture. Car backfires, you hit the ground. I imagine there are pedestrians walking around. Do they look at you and wonder what's the matter? Oh sure. Do they ask you, Are you no, okay? No, they there was nothing ever said. You were you were like well, just the the look of you, short hair, they uh, knew. Clean cut, you know, fresh clothes. Yeah, they knew. They knew. But they, no one ever said anything. So. And it was just a, a different time, and uh, that's the way it was. Well, you remind me why we have Vietnam Veterans Day, yeah. Rick. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. We've come to the end of our program, and as always, we have many more stories that can be told that, than can be told in one program. We do have a breakfast here in four weeks' time. I hope you can make it. Send me your pictures. And we always like to close with God Bless America. Walt, would you like to lead us with God Bless America? Before I do that, every one of these stories that uh, I sit and listen to reminds me of my own story. So someday maybe Todd will allow me uh, to tell it to you. I just close with uh, telling you that on May the 1st, 1945, I was stationed in the country of France when a report came out that uh, Adolf Hitler committed suicide. So I can tell you more some other time when Todd gives me permission. Let us sing God Bless America. 
God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the ocean white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, sweet home. And may God bless you and all that you do. May the Lord bless you as you leave this place and travel towards your home. Thank you, Walter. You've been listening to another live storytelling event by the Veterans Breakfast Club. For more information about the Veterans Breakfast Club, including a schedule of our events throughout Western Pennsylvania, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com. 